Isaiah 61. People sometime ask, sometimes ask, how are we sure that we're talking about Jesus? Because you remember Sunday we talked about how Paul in that particular section of Romans 13 is, is being very straightforward. He's not using any cryptic language or poetic language or prophetic language. And that's almost everything that Isaiah is, right? Prophetic and poetic and... How are we sure when, when Isaiah is talking about the arm of the Lord in chapter 53, or he's talking about the servant of the Lord in chapter 52, how are we sure that's Jesus? And as we've discussed, our Jewish friends don't see that at all. Can't see it, won't see it, don't see it. If they're pushed on the issue... If you corner someone who's willing to have the conversation, our Jewish friends will say, well, Jesus didn't do the things the Bible said Messiah would do. Jesus didn't do the things that the arm of God is going to do, that the servant of God is going to do, as prophesied by Isaiah. Jesus didn't redeem the way that the Redeemer that God began promising all the way back in Genesis 3 is supposed to do? And you and I, of course, answer, not yet. There are a lot of ways to connect Isaiah's prophecies to Jesus. There are a lot of ways to answer that question. How do we know? How are we sure? We've talked about most of them along the way. But one of the easiest ways to get there, one of the easiest ways to look at each other and say, yeah, we're sure. We know we can be sure. We know that we are sure. One of the easiest ways is that Jesus says so. Chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And we'll just pause there. Most of us recognize that, not only from where we're reading it in context in Isaiah 61, most of us recognize it from Luke chapter 4. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, first thing that happens, he's baptized, right? And the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. He's baptized in the Holy Spirit and immediately led by the Holy Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness, to be tempted by Satan. When he returns 40 days later, we read that he's filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. He's teaching throughout the region, throughout Galilee. And one Sabbath, he returns to Nazareth, where he grew up. And he stood in the synagogue that Sabbath to read and was handed the scroll of Isaiah. Interestingly, nothing that we read suggests that he reached for the scroll, that he picked out that particular scroll. No, it just was, that was the one that happened to be handed to him. Interesting coincidence, if you believe in that kind of thing. The scheduled reading that Sabbath in the synagogue, Jesus read what we just read from Isaiah 61. 
with a little bit of Isaiah 49 thrown in. The recovery of sight by the blind. He wanted to make sure that that signature miracle of Messiah prophesied by Isaiah was, was going to be in the forefront of their minds. Now the rabbis look at this passage. The rabbis look at Isaiah 61 and they debate and they dispute who could Isaiah be talking about? And many of them, many rabbis will argue, well, Isaiah's talking about himself. This is an autobiographical kind of a prophecy. He's speaking of himself. He's saying, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm anointed by God. And the prophecies that he's speaking in the eyes of the, of the rabbis refer to the prophecy of Israel's eventual return from captivity in Babylon. Israel's return to the land, captives being set free, and so forth. And we can see how they can get there, right? Except for one thing, Jesus disagrees. When he finished reading that passage, he closed the book. He looked at the room, and he said, Luke 4.21, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He said to them, by the way, it's talking about me. And Luke goes on to say that many bore witness. Many who were there looked at each other and said, yeah, it's true. They weren't sure how it could be true. They said to one another, wait a minute, that, that's Joseph's kid. They weren't quite sure how it could be true, but they said, yeah, we think it's true. Our Jewish friends protest, no, 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 it can't be true. Because if there was a Jesus, and if he did say that, well, he was wrong. He wasn't the Messiah. Messiah was supposed to deliver Israel from her oppressors. He was supposed to usher in, verse 2, the second part, the day of vengeance of our God. He was supposed to be the Lion of Judah that we just sang about. He was supposed to defeat Israel's enemies and set up the kingdom and usher in peace and prosperity. Look, verse 3. He's supposed to comfort those who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins after Babylon sacked Jerusalem, raise up the former desolations, repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the son of the foreigner shall be your plowman and your vine dressers. Jesus didn't do any of that. That wasn't true on, on the other side of his life, if he even lived. Israel hasn't seen any of that ever. And our response, again, still, yeah, you're right. Jesus hasn't done that yet. Israel hasn't seen that yet. Because when Jesus stood in the synagogue 2,000 years ago and spoke those words, when he stood before his people and announced his mission and his ministry, he stopped at a comma, didn't he? He said back in verse 2, he came, I came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord comma, and he closed the book. 
stopped at a comma, and in that comma resides the entire church age. If you were with us a few years ago when we were going through the life of Christ, sometimes we would, we would pause in Matthew and lateral over to John, pause in John, lateral over to Mark, and, and say between, between this verse and this verse, and John especially, these three chapters in the Synoptic Gospels happened. Same idea here. In that one comma, the last 2,000 years of church history have happened. Because when Jesus returns as the Lion of Judah, it will be, verse 2, to usher in the day of vengeance. And on the other side of that is the restoration and the renewal of Israel that we've been reading about in Isaiah. Romans chapter 12. We read last week, vengeance belongs to the Lord. After Israel is abused, almost annihilated at the hand of Antichrist, Jesus will return to administer vengeance. We'll see that in chapter 63. It's going to get bloody. How do we know that we're talking about Jesus? He says so. So we know so. And, and here's the thing. Even if Jesus hadn't gone to the synagogue that Sabbath, even if he hadn't read from Isaiah that day, Look again at how wonderfully and vividly the first verse and a half describe his ministry. Even, even if Jesus didn't validate it, we could still see it. The Lord has anointed me. Some healer, Hebrew scholars point out that word in, translated anointed can also be translated messiah What is Messiah? The promised deliverer. The Lord has promised me and delivered me. Jesus, to do what? To preach good tidings to the poor. Good tidings. You could, with perfect validity, translate that good news or gospel. To the poor, to the meek is another translation. To the humble to preach the gospel to those willing to humble themselves and hear it. To bind up the brokenhearted, which could be either hearts corrupted, damaged by sin, to bind them up, to, to replace them, really. To take the heart of stone and, and, and transplant next to it a heart of flesh. Or bind up the brokenhearted, we could also read as to, to encourage the, those just profoundly disappointed by this broken world torn apart by sin. I think either way works. To proclaim liberty to the captive. To tell those who are in bondage to sin, those taken captive by Satan to do his will. You can be free, and here's how. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 2.26. Paul says, my, my ministry is to encourage those that they might come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Same idea. Such an important reminder when we encounter those 
devoted to atheism or secularism or humanism or any of the other isms who present themselves as the enemies of the church, the enemies of God, we have to remember they're, they might see us as enemies, but we need to see them as victims of our enemy. Satan is our enemy. Sin is our enemy. Death is our enemy. They're just prisoners. Those of you my age and older, you'll remember Patty Hearst, kidnapped and brainwashed by the SLA. She's kidnapped, the next thing we know, she shows up in a, in a bank robbery video. Deceived. Brainwashed. That's what Satan does to this world. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. This could be an echo of the pre previous line. This could also be a reference to Jesus opening the doors to Hades and setting free the believing dead and, and leading them from paradise to heaven. I could go either way, depends what day you ask me. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Here we've got an Old Testament reference. This is a reference to the day of, I'm sorry, to the year of Jubilee. We read about it primarily in Leviticus 25. Every 50th year in the Jewish calendar, slaves would be set free, debt would be forgiven, property was returned to the family that originally owned it. I'd call it a great reset, but some of you would throw things at me. But modern society could use that or something like that. A reset initiated, administered by God, that'd be a good thing. If you look around the world today, wealth is concentrated in an amazingly few families. And it gets more true every year that the rich get richer. The longer we go, the more true that that gets. In Israel, that was only supposed to go so far. It was only supposed to become so true before God said, okay, every 50th year, stop. Just stop, just stop doing that to one another. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's not fair. You know, the people who worked hard and made shrewd business decisions and invested wisely, they should, they should get to keep the, the, the bounty of their work. That's not fair, and you're exactly right. Because the year of Jubilee was a manifestation. It was an expression of God's grace. And that's what Isaiah is invoking here. What, that's what the Holy Spirit is pointing at here. In announcing the year of Jubilee, when Jesus read that, he was announcing the beginning of an age of grace. The age that we inhabit, this age, this church age that we were born into, an age in which we get to be saved by grace. And it's an age that we know one day is going to come to an abrupt halt, right? When Jesus returns, second part of verse 2, to execute vengeance. What else happens? To comfort those who mourn. That's a reference to Zechariah 12. We've turned there how many times in our study through Isaiah? But in Zechariah 12, after God pours out on the house of David the spirit of grace and supplication, they'll look at me, whom they pierced, 
and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. That's Zechariah 12, verse 10. Jesus is going to return and he's going to walk among those mourning in Jerusalem and throughout Israel and he's going to say, it's okay. You don't have to mourn. You're forgiven. You get to rejoice. Think about how Israel's going to feel realizing the one that they handed over to be crucified is the one who came to save and the means by which they're saved is the blood that he shed on the cross that they arranged. And Jesus is going to say, I know, I was there. But it's okay, you get to rejoice. Put away your mourning. We're on the other side of that now. I died for guilt and shame. Let rejoicing replace your shame. Back to Isaiah. To comfort those who mourn, to console them, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Hey, worship. Worship, he's going to tell them, that they might be called trees of righteousness. That's a fulfillment of Psalm 1, isn't it? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The Psalms are so rich. And that's going to be fulfilled in Israel. When Jesus returns, they're going to be the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. Look back just one chapter to verse 21 of 60. Your people shall be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I might be glorified. The end of 60, a little one shall become a thousand and a small one a great nation. Back over to 61, the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified it's interesting we've been talking about our jewish friends and how they look at this our preterist friends those who believe that all prophecy or almost all prophecy was fulfilled in 70 a.d when rome sacked jerusalem our covenant friends all of our friends that think that god is done with israel they read verse three and they see the church they look at verse 3 and, and they see us. Commentary that I happen to own. Here we read of the radical transformation of the poor, broken-hearted, mourning, ash-covered captives whom Jesus has come to save. In salvation, Christ has removed from us our disgrace, our ashes, our chains. Instead, he's crowned us with beauty, anointed us with the oil of joy, and clothed us with robes of perfect righteousness. But keep going. Isaiah continues, They shall rebuild the old ruins 
and raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. The sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. And the same commentator says about those verses. Having been given the gift of imputed righteousness by faith in Christ, we also receive the Holy Spirit as Jesus was anointed and were unleashed on a world devastated by sin and Satan. We rebuild ancient ruins, even cities that have been devastated for centuries, verse 4. Certainly the returning exiles did this physically in Jerusalem, but these words are more perfectly fulfilled spiritually by the building of the church of Jesus out of the rubble of human history. People's lives are weighed, laid waste by sin, as are whole human societies all over the face of the earth. The trail of wreckage left by sin has only one chief rebuilder, Jesus Christ, and Jesus has chosen to rebuild lives and societies by his transformed people. We are rebuilders of ancient ruins. So verses 4 through 9 picture the mission of the church now unfolding to build the new Jerusalem stone by stone, quarried from Satan's dark kingdom. that it, it, put yourself in the place of someone who believes that God is done with Israel. If you've already decided that, verses 4 to 6 have to refer to something. If Israel isn't an option, what else could it be? It must be the church. And, and we don't have any problem, or we shouldn't, reading that as application Today, the kingdom of God is in us. And the things that are literally, physically true in the millennial kingdom should be, to a certain extent at least, true in us. They should describe us, the inhabitants of the spiritual kingdom, or, or what's sometimes called the mystery kingdom. That's a perfectly good and valid application. It cannot be the right interpretation. Interpretation, remember, there's what, so what, now what? Okay, so what? What is, what is Isaiah saying here? What does this mean? What's the right interpretation? It can't be the church for a lot of reasons, but one is just in front of us. Finish verse 6. They shall call you servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. The church is comprised almost entirely of Gentiles. So if they and you and your in verses 4, 5, and 6, are the church. Second half of verse 6 makes no sense. But if they and you and your, in verses 4, 5, and 6, are Israel, repentant Israel, rescued Israel, revived Israel, restored Israel, they make perfect sense. And it continues to make sense if we keep going. Isaiah 40, 40 verse 2, remember God said that Israel would receive double punishment for her sin, Keep going in verse 7. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, what's our land? Israel has land. It's the land that God promised Abraham. They shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Israel will get to participate in the new covenant. Verse 8, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I'll direct their work in truth, and I'll make with them an everlasting covenant. The same covenant that you and I now enjoy. 
the covenant that we have entered into through Christ's blood, they will finally get in on. But wait, if we've already entered into it, the covenant that's being talked about here, are you sure this isn't the church? Yeah, because of everything we've read before and because of what comes next. Verse 9, their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles. And their offspring among the people, all who see them shall acknowledge them. They're the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. Okay, known among the Gentiles, same objection as before, right? Why mention that if it's Gentiles going to Gentiles? But posterity makes no sense. What's that a reference to? That's God's covenant with Abraham. If we go back, 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 way back to Genesis 17... What does God promise Abraham? With pages falling out of my Bible. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make nations of you. Kings shall come from you. I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All of the land of Canaan has an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And most of that promise is still pending. As we read verse 9, we read about its fulfillment. Verse 10. I'll greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Well, we're the bride of Christ. So surely that refers to us. Yeah, we're the bride of Christ. Israel's the wife of Jehovah. By the time this wedding happens, verse 10, we'll already be back from our honeymoon. We're going to go honeymoon with Jesus for seven years. It was seven days on the Jewish calendar. We're going to honeymoon with Jesus for seven years. And we're going to return with Jesus to watch this unfold. We're going to watch the earth bring forth its bud, verse 11. And as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. We're going to return with Jesus. We're going to see it unfold. We're going to watch it play out. We're going to have front row seats. And if anybody says, excuse me, can I see your tickets? We're going to point to Jesus and say we're with him. Because we're going to be with him. He's going to be with us. And we're going to be together forever. We will be. We are. It's already begun. It's happening right now. And, and having sort of taken pains and fallen all over myself tonight, like, like we do most nights when we're looking at prophecy, to make sure we have the right interpretation and that we're not confusing interpretation and application. It's okay to go back to that application. We need to... Be diligent around interpretation. I heard a pastor say this weekend, how you think about the end times is how you think about anything. What you think about the end times affects how you think about everything. And that's, that, that's one of those things, the more I think about it, the more true it becomes. 
I mean, that's really, really true. How you think about the end times affects how you think about everything. But we shouldn't let our zealousness for a, the right interpretation, one interpretation, many applications, we shouldn't let our zealousness for interpretation rob us of good and valid application because it's, it's here. Our predators' friends are pointing at something. They're just confused about what it is. It's here, though, and it's good application. Jesus told the disciples, he told us, follow me. First thing that he said to the disciples, last thing that he said to the disciples, follow me, continue my mission, continue my ministry, preach the gospel, make disciples. Which means, go with me on this, if we're to continue his ministry, and that's what the Great Commission is, right? Then the words he uses to describe his ministry describe our ministry, or should. We are called, yes? We're anointed, baptized by the Holy Spirit. To do what? To preach the good news to the humble, to anyone who will listen. To tell the broken, and that's all of us, how they can be healed. To tell those taken captive by Satan to do his will, those in bondage to sin, how they can be set free. That was Jesus' purpose. He stood in the synagogue and said so. And the thing that strikes me as I meditate on this is he had no other purpose. That was it. That was his mission. Verse and a half encapsulated his whole mission, his entire mandate. That was everything he was about. We talk about our mission. We talk a lot about our mission as, as a church, as Calvary Wichita, win, build, send, win and build and send disciples for Jesus Christ. And we, and we say, if it doesn't have to do with one or more of those three things, we don't do it. The thing that, the thing that we have to realize is that we are the church. And that doesn't just apply to the, to the, the plans that we, the events that we plan, the ministries that we organize, the, the retreats that we go on. We're the church individually, each of us. Together, we are the ecclesia, the called-out ones. So individually, personally, we have this mission to preach the good news, to tell the broken how they can be healed, the captive how they can be set free. And we say, yeah, okay, I see that. I, I, I can see how Jesus has, has commissioned me to do that. Do we have the same single-mindedness that he did? The same ruthlessness that if it's not about preaching, if it's not about healing, if it's not about liberating, what is it doing in my life? I need to get it out. And, and the answer for me, I mean, it's a, it's a question that deserves an answer. If I look, talking about me, if I look at the not Jesus things in my life and I say, what are they doing there? Why are they still there? The answer is they help me not be sad. They help me not feel so helpless. They give me a sense of empowerment. They help me be less uncomfortable. They help me be less lonely. They, those not Jesus things in my life give me a break from being constantly disappointed by life and 
people and the things and all of it. But the thing is, I shouldn't need them. Because what is Jesus' promise here? What does he promise on the other side of his coming? What does he promise to those over whom he is king? Reread the first part of the chapter. Comfort, consolation, beauty, joy, purpose, praise, peace. That's what he's promising. And my takeaway is if I do a better job of letting him bless me all of those ways, I'm also going to be doing a better job of letting him use me all the ways that he wants to. Final thought as, as we wrap up tonight. Verse 10. Remember that we said on Sunday, if you were here, Paul says for when he's getting ready to explain something. Paul's not the only one. Go to the middle of verse 10. For he's clothed me with garments of salvation, covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and a bride adorns herself with jewels. Because, he's explaining, God has clothed me with the garments of salvation, covered me with the robe of righteousness. Now go to the top. I'll greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. And if I'm doing that, verse 11, the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth. If I'm abiding in my salvation, if I'm accepting it and embracing it and letting it satisfy me, then good things will grow. Good things, good fruit will happen when we abide in the vine. God promises it, and he promises it, and he just promised it again. Father, we ask, stubborn as we are, rebellious as we can be, still still tossed and grappling battling with our sin nature. Father, in your, in your endless grace and in your inexhaustible mercy, would you show us again and again and again how great a salvation is ours because of the cross. How perfect we are in your eyes because of the blood. How free, how free we are from everything that once ensnared us because of your spirit. Lord, we ask that you'd remind us and remind us and remind us that we might surrender and surrender and surrender again that we might be used and used and used and bear much fruit to the glory of your name.